0: We're going to be in Psalm 51 today as we continue our series, Part 3, Covert Affairs. In the wake of numerous confessions by fallen politicians, sports heroes, and business executives, Susan Wise Bauer makes an important distinction about, the, about apologies and confessions in her book, The Art of Public Grovel. She states, an apology, listen to this, An apology is an expression of regret. I'm sorry. A confession is an admission of fault. I'm sorry because I did wrong. I sinned. Big difference between apology and confession. I like the distinction that she makes. Some of us have a hard time admitting that we are wrong. Sometimes we say things like, I'm sorry if I offended you. And what we really mean is, I'm sorry because I got caught. Uh, difference between an apology and confession. I want to look at 1 John 1.9 to start off, to get us thinking about this subject of confession. Here's what uh, the scripture says in 1 John 1.9, written to believers in Christ, and the Apostle John says, if we confess our sins, there's a condition here, if we confess, that means agree with God about what God says on this subject, he, that is God, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us of all unrighteousness. So he's going to be faithful. He's going to be faithful to his promise if we confess our sins. He's going to be just... And he will forgive us our sins and he will purify us of all unrighteousness. Now, here's the question. Do you believe that? It's easy for a lot of people to believe that. It's hard for some people to believe that. And often it's easy to believe it for somebody else. But can you believe it for yourself? That God can forgive you for something that you've done. We're going to come back to this one. One of the major issues that leads to confession usually is guilt. Author Brenda Poinsett writes, in Understanding a Woman's Depression, which I know nothing about, here's what she says. This is helpful. True guilt is a valuable asset for living. It helps us when we hurt others or betray our standards or values. God uses guilt to influence us to change our minds about what we are doing, leading us to repentance, leading to a change, a change in attitude, a change in behavior. And then she says: if we never felt guilt, we would not follow rules or standards, obey the law, or have good relationships with loved ones. Author and um, Christian medical doctor Paul Turnier wrote in Escape from Loneliness, this observation. He says, Many people... This is going to be helpful here. Many people confuse the conviction of sin with such feelings, feeling as inferiority, lack of self-confidence, and so on. Yet, whoever observes people closely can see that these feelings and the conviction of sin are not only different from each other, but in certain regards, mutually exclusive. He continues a diffuse and vague feeling of guilt kills the personality when people people often feel guilty about things like i'm inadequate i'm inferior i didn't do what i wanted to do i didn't accomplish what i should have my mom's not proud of me dad's not proud of me or whatever and people feel guilty whereas the conviction of sin gives life one brings a death to personality and the other brings life to personality the former depends on people or public opinion while the latter depends on god think about this true guilt the conviction of true guilt moves us to what to be restored To be renewed, to be forgiven, to be put on a new path. True guilt can bring life. So, let's go back. One night, when kings go out to war, David, the king, the great king of Israel, was walking around on the rooftop of his palace. And guess what? He sees a woman taking a bath next door. Neighbor's wife, he likes, he likes, I wonder who this person is. So he inquires about her, he likes, he sends for her, he likes, she gets pregnant. Uh Uh-oh. He sends for her husband. He thinks, cover up. He thinks, I'm going to convince him that he's really the dad and I'm not. Doesn't work. He sends the husband to his death. the battle line psalm 51 the intro let's look at that psalm 51 the intro do we have that there we go for the director of music this is how if you have psalm 51 open this is how psalm 51 begins a psalm of david psalm 51 is written by david and here's the context we don't always have the context to psalms but we do have the context to this one When the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So, 2 Samuel chapter 12. God sent Nathan the prophet, told him a little story. And then he said, David, you are the man. And David says, I've sinned. It's like he didn't get it. He'd been a cover up. He'd been denying it. He'd been pushing it down. Avoiding guilt. And he's confronted, it hits him directly like a ton of bricks, and he just caves in on the spot, because God is speaking through Nathan, the prophet, and he gets it. So Psalm 51 is an amazing psalm, because it looks into the interior life of David, the great king and the great sinner, and uh, the, the amazing thing about this psalm, it has been given to us. We get to look into David's heart and David's life, a man after God's own heart, and he gives us a model to help us deal with sin. So let's look at it. First, we have the plea for forgiveness, verses one and two. Um, the plea is in verse one. David says, have mercy on me, O God. Lord, please give me Mercy. Don't give me justice. I don't want justice now. I want mercy. And so he begins with this plea. Why does he make this plea for mercy from God? Because you remember, the penalty for adultery is public execution, death. And the penalty for murder, his responsibility with Uriah the Hittite, is execution, death. This would be justice. He doesn't want justice, he wants mercy. And he said, it says in uh, Psalm 51b, uh, do you have, um, you? there we go, according to, let me just read it from 51, um, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. First he wants mercy, and then he appeals to the character of God, God's unfailing love. Ne- next slide, please. According to your unfailing love. According, un, God's love. This is the Old Testament word. It's really similar to agape in the New Testament. Uh, this is a loyal love. This is a love of commitment. Um, this is a love, uh, uh, I'm, I'm going to be there. I'm on your team. It's a love of promise, a steadfast, loyal love. And so David is appealing to the character of God. Why? Because David knows God. God. He has a big advantage here. Big advantage. David knows God personally. David has been walking with God for years. He's in a relationship with God. He knows the scriptures. He's counting on all he knows about God. Now, this is why it's so important for you and me to know God. It's why it's so important for you and me to know the scriptures, so that when we have tough times come, We can figure out, what does God say about it? What is God thinking about this? What is God like? Is, Is God against me? What does this mean? It's so important to know the scriptures, and David knows the scripture, and so he's going to appeal to God according to his unfailing love and his great compassion. Because of God's compassionate, caring heart, he's coming to God and said, God, have mercy on me. I don't deserve it. I deserve justice, but I know you. So have mercy on me. One of the things that David knew, he knew, knows the scripture. Uh, Psalm, excuse me, Exodus thirty-four. We looked at this a couple of weeks back, and he passed in front of Moses. God passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, "This is God speaking. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness and rebellious, rebellious and sin." By the way, this is the God of the Old Testament. A lot of confusion about God. God has never changed. Some responsibilities for man have changed. God has not changed. Sometimes people get the idea, read a few passages in the Old Testament, that God is somehow all about justice and righteousness, and he's going to zap anybody who disagrees with him. That's not the Old Testament. God is extremely patient with sinners extremely patient. Yes, he's concerned about justice. He was always a gracious God, and David knew that, and some of you aren't sure. Some people expect God to be gracious to other people, but not gracious to them. We also see a plea in verse 2, Psalm 51, verse 2, David says, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He wants mercy. He wants uh, his iniquity washed away, and he wants cleansed from uh, sin. He also wants uh, his transgressions. Blot out my transgressions, also in verse 1. Um, why? Well, David feels guilty. David feels true moral guilt for his actions. He feels dirty. He feels he needs to be made clean. Um, He feels his guilt. His guilt is weighing on him. This is like a real experience. This isn't like an idea. It's like he is carrying this guilt. The writer uses three words here, transgression, iniquity, and sin. And one of the reasons he does it, and one of the reasons David uses it, because he just wants to make sure that all the bases are covered, I want all of it gone. I need forgiven for all of it. Uh, transgression is about violating God's boundaries. Tr- transgressing God's boundaries. It's rebellion. Iniquity is an intentional sin. It's wrongdoing. It's uh, twisting or bending the rules, making it crooked. David did that. He misused and abused his power. Sin. This is we're the one we're most common with this. Uh, it's missing the mark. It's falling short of God's standard. And David says, "I got to get rid of it all. Got to get rid of it all." The confession comes in uh, verses three through five. And first, the conviction. Verse three. Uh, David says, "For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. I know it's." David had been pushing it down. Um, He had been denying it. He'd been living like God didn't exist or God's rules didn't exist. And now it's just pushed up in front. Uh, When Nathan came and God just let this all out and David just, oh, everybody knows. God knows. And uh, he says, "I, I just, I know it's before me. My sin is always before me. He can't keep it buried any longer. It is on the front burner. It's on the forefront of his mind. It's there when he goes to bed. It's there when he he gets up. It's there all throughout the day. I don't know if anybody ever experienced that before. David did. Confession comes in verse 4. He says, against you and you only, I've sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David is acknowledging his sin Before the God of the universe. David is speaking to the just judge, creator God of the universe. And then he says, so you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Uh, David knows. Now David is not denying that he sinned against other people. He's not denying that he sinned against Bathsheba or sinned against Uriah. There's kind of an assumption here on that. And um, David has written something down for posterity. He's written something down something down for us. All of the lurid details are not there about his sin. We, we have that captured in chapter 11, chapter 12, 2 Samuel. But David is addressing the God of the universe. And ultimately... The highest court is the court in heaven, and David is addressing uh, this court. The, The bottom line is David owns his sin before God. He agrees with God that sin is sin. He agrees with God that he is guilty, and he agrees that God is just. Again, David knows God. He understands God's Justice, he understands God's mercy. Acknowledgement, verse 5, he says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. David is humbled before God. Uh, He is reminded as a great king that he is a sinner. He had forgotten that. He thought when he was walking around on the rooftop of his palace that he was kind of above everybody else. And not everything applied to him. And he kind of just forgot about that. And he got into super big trouble. And now he's humbled. He's reminded that as a great king. uh, He's like, he has a nature like all men. He's not better than any man. He was born with sin. It was passed from Adam, the very first man. His parents had sin natures. He too was born with a sin nature. It's like he forgot. Now, Says, surely I was sinful at birth and sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Sometimes this gets misused or something. It's not that uh, the relationship of his parents was anyway sinful. It's just the point is uh, the sin nature comes from our parents and it came from their parents and it's just passed to every human being. Uh, it's that capacity to be selfish. It's that capacity to be self-centered. Do you ever have to teach a child to be bad? The Apostle John reminds us in 1 John 1:8 1, that 1 John 1:8 1, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Um, we have sin. 1 John 1:10 1, You know what's what's right between 1 John 1.8 and 1 John 1.10, 1 John 1.9. 1 John 1.10 says, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. So uh, just a quick question here. Are you without sin today? You don't have to raise your hand. Is there anything you need to confess to God? You don't have to confess it to me. Is there anything you need to confess to God? I want you to think about that. In uh, in 51, verses 6 through 13, we have the request for restoration. So it's number three if you're following on the outline, the request for restoration. Verse 6 is God's design. Um, The NIV says here, Yet you desired faithfulness. Even in the womb, you you taught me wisdom in that secret place. Um, That's not my favorite translation. I like the old NIV a little bit better, and some of you will know this. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. Maybe that's just because I'm old. I don't know that I like the older version. Now, the, the words are very um, close. The idea in Hebrew, the idea of faithfulness and truthfulness have the same root. And so it's like, it's like being faithful to the truth, truthfulness. And the point is, God... Has designed man, designed us to be in a personal relationship with him. God has designed this relationship to be truthful. This is going to be really important. You know, we talk about having a personal relationship with God. This passage is really, really helpful. God desires truthfulness in your entire being. He desires truth in your inner parts, in your heart, in your mind. No secrets. Transparency. Authenticity. Um, David had secrets, and he tried to block God out of his life. God desires openness and transparency um, before him. David, right now, is being honest. David is opening up. It's like, search my go- heart, O oh God. Uh, he, he's recognizing, God, you desire truthfulness in my inner being. You, de- you desire total honesty. You don't want me to keep back little things or big things. You just want me to be totally open with you. That's God's design. Verse 7, cl- David requests cleansing. He says in verse 7, "'Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. "'Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow.'" Uh, It's almost like he's getting excited about this. Cleanse me with hyssop. Hyssop was a branch that was used. uh, The priest used this on two occasions to sort of declare uh, ceremonial cleansing. One occasion was when somebody had leprosy and they'd been healed. They needed to be accepted back into the worshiping community. And the priest would take uh, a branch of hyssop, sort of like a brush or something, dip it in blood of a sacrificial animal, and then he would sprinkle it. And he'd sprinkle it on the person who had been healed. And that was a cleansing. It was ceremonial cleansing. They were supposed to wash the blood off. But uh, they did have blood sprinkled on them. And the other one was if somebody touched a dead corpse, they were unclean and they needed it to be received back in to uh, the worshiping community. And they had to go to a priest after a period of time to do that. And David is saying, um, cleanse me. God, it's like, it's, it's a figurative, it's metaphorically, it's, he's picturing a priest, he knows if God can do this, he's going to be clean. That's all he wants is to be clean, and he wants God to make him clean. He says, wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. There again, it's a metaphor, like a garment that's dirty with blood and uh, Body fluids and stuff, and he's saying, "I'm I'm just a mess. It'll clean me up, and make me like whiter than snow. Um, make it bright. Remove all the stain and all the spots. Do that, and I will be clean." David knows God can remove the stain. Verses 8 through 10, renewal. Notice this process that's going on. This confession and renewal. Then comes restoration. Verses 8 through 10, he says, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let let the bones you have crushed rejoice. What's he talking about here? Well, one of the things he's saying, he's he's speaking figuratively. David is a psalmist. He's a writer. He's a poet. And he uses a lot of figures of speech. The bones that you have crushed, oh God. What's he talking about? He's saying, the guilt that I experienced for my sin was so heavy. It was crushing. I had no life left. Let let me hear joy and gladness. He has no joy and gladness when he's carrying that sin. And if God removes the sin, the joy will come back. The gladness will come back. Verse 9, he says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. He's saying, hide your face. Don't see my sins. Yes, I know you're just God, but if you remove the sins, you won't see my sin. My sin won't ever be before me. He wants God to blot it out, to erase it, to wipe it clean. And then verse 10, uh, one of the best known uh, verses in the Bible, and one of the best known verses in the book of Psalms, he says, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. God is the creator God. He is the one who creates. He He is asking God for a miracle. God, I want you to change my heart. I want you to recreate my heart. Um, he asks for a heart that's made pure uh, so that uh, lust is removed, deception is removed, self-centeredness is removed. He prays for a steadfast spirit to be uh, in him, in David. Uh, David is praying. He, he, he realizes he understands that he's really kind of morally bankrupt, and he, he has nothing to offer to God. This is really good theology, by the way. David's, this is really clear here. And he, he knows that it is God who has to enable him. God has to give him a clean heart. Uh, God has to give him the, a steadfast spirit. He has to revive that spirit, bring it back to life. Um to uh, to give him motivation to obey, to give him the desire in his heart to please God. That's what he's asking. He's asking for a miracle. Now, this isn't conversion. He's already a converted man caught in sin. But he still needs God to revive him. And that's what he's asking for. Restoration, verses 11 through 13. Um, he says, Do not cast me from your presence and... and Or take your Holy Spirit from me. Um, David does not want to be removed from God's presence. That's a good idea, not to be removed. What would it mean to be removed from God's presence? Ultimately, to be eternally separated from God forever. Uh, He does not want God to remove his Holy Spirit from him. Why does he pray that? Because he has already seen what happened to Saul, the king before him. King Saul, the very first king of Israel. David is the second king of Israel. Um, 1 Samuel 16, verse 14. Saul is king. Now the spirit of the Lord, that's the Holy Spirit, the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. Saul not good. Let me just say something about how the Holy Spirit worked in the Old Testament. The Spirit of God came on specific people at specific times for specific pers- uh, purposes. He came on kings for a specific purpose to lead them. He came on Saul. He came on David very clearly. He came on prophets who spoke the word of God And the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he spoke. But there was no guarantee in the Old Testament that the Spirit of God would stay permanently. It's important to understand. Okay? So David is praying, God, don't take... I saw you take your Holy Spirit from Saul. I fear that now. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me now. So this raises a, you know, kind of a practical question for us, worth considering. What does the New Testament teach about the Holy Spirit and the believer? Sometimes we talk about being indwelled by the Holy Spirit permanently. Would that be accurate? And um, so we're doing an exposition of Psalm 51. Right now we're just going to take a sidestep and we're going to talk about the theology of the Holy Spirit because it fits to our passage, and, and it, the passage raises a question for us. So, John chapter 14, verses 15 through 17, this is Jesus. So I'm taking us to the New Testament, thousand years after King David writes Psalm 51. He's, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. If, keep my commands. If that's the only thing you remember today, that's good enough. Just go now. Just do that. Verse 16, so... Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. Next slide. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. Jesus is talking about a change that is coming. It hasn't come yet. The Holy Spirit had been with the disciples. They had performed miracles. They had done a lot of things for God, and the Holy Spirit had been in it. But but Jesus is teaching there's going to be a change coming. The Holy Spirit won't be just with you. The Holy Spirit is going to be in you, and that's going to be new and different. They don't get it. They don't get it yet. Like they didn't get a lot of things that Jesus taught. That's okay. We wouldn't have gotten it either probably. So, um, I'm not going to go to Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, Jesus had told the disciples to go to Jerusalem and pray and wait. And then he, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. And he, the Holy Spirit miraculously descended on the disciples who were gathered and they went out into the streets and they proclaimed the glories of God. 3,000 people were converted that day when Peter got up and preached the gospel. That's how the church got started. The Holy Spirit descended on God's people who were true believers. That's when they are indwelled by the Holy Spirit so that those who uh, are true believers, born again, have been given the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18 through 20. So I'm going to a church, one of the, an early church. This church, if you read the book of 1 Corinthians, was not known for being super spiritual. They thought they were super spiritual, but not according to their actions. And Paul says to the church, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Next slide. Do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit? Corinthian church, believers in Christ, don't you know that your body is a temple? It's a place where the Holy Spirit lives, where the Holy Spirit resides, whom you've received from God. You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. That's really practical. You have the Holy Spirit here in your life. It makes a big difference how you live today. You can't just go out and be sexually active with anybody. It makes a difference how you live. It makes a difference what you do with your body. Your body's not your own. It belongs to Jesus. Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11. This is Paul to the Roman church. He says, You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. If you're a follower of Christ, if you're a believer in Jesus... Born again, you have the Spirit of God living in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, pretty simple, they don't belong to Christ. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a true believer. You don't belong to Jesus. You're not in the body of Christ. Next slide. But if Christ is in you through the Holy Spirit... Then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. The Apostle Paul has the assumption that true believers have the Holy Spirit in them. So, how long does this last? Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13-14. through 14. Chapter 1, verse 13, Paul says to the Ephesian church, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So, by the way, have you heard the message of Christ, the gospel of your salvation? Christ died for you. He paid the penalty for your, your sins. Have you heard that? Have you understood that? And then he says, when you believed, and so have you believed in Jesus, that he died on the cross and paid the penalty for your sins? You were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. And that seal is a word used from the first century where um, like a, a Roman officer would wear a signet ring and whenever something was sent with the power of the Roman Empire... An officer could mark his letter with a seal, and then he would just imprint it. It's marked. This belongs This belongs, and has the authority of the Roman Empire. Don't mess with it. Don't open with it. Don't open it unless you have the authority to open it. Seal, that's what they understood from the first century. Paul is saying you were marked with a seal, and if you're a believer, you have a mark on you, and it is the Holy Spirit. Okay, next slide who is a deposit, the Holy Spirit is given to you as a deposit, a down payment, guaranteeing our inheritance. That's like heaven, inheritance. It's like all the gift of your total salvation that is coming. You don't have it yet, but you will. And this is guaranteed until the redemption of those who are God's own possession. It's guaranteed. I didn't say it. I didn't dream it up. It's God's word. To the praise of his glory. It's a God thing. You're not good enough. You'll never be good enough. You don't deserve it. And you never will. But God has given you the Holy Spirit. If you're a true believer in Jesus and he's marked you, that ought to encourage you. And there's no plans for him to depart. So he, you have the hound of heaven in your life. That's one of the reasons why it's easy to feel guilty when you disobey. That's one of the reasons why non-Christians don't feel that guilty for doing The same kinds of things. Because God has given you the Holy Spirit to help you, to guide you, to show you when you get out of bounds. Restoration continued. Psalm 51, verse 12. David continues his confession. He continues his prayer. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. David had joy. He lost it. He recognizes he'd like to have it back. And he asks for a willing spirit. You know what? You can pray for that. We get this idea that we just got to you know, pull up our bootstraps and try harder to be a good Christian. No. David here gives us an example. Pray that God will give you a willing spirit because he can. You're not smart enough or powerful enough to be able to do it without him. And so ask God for a steadfast spirit. Ask God for a willing spirit. God wants us to depend on him. David gets that. This is why it's such a classic. For um, 3,000 years, God's people have used this psalm. It's about that open relationship with God, that true honesty. Return to worship, verses 14 through uh, 17. Uh, I've got to go back. Verse 13, let me... Psalm 51, verse 13. David says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. What is, what is he saying? He's saying, Lord, if you forgive me, this is what I'm going to do. He's making a vow. He knows he has to have God's divine enablement to do it. He said, If you forgive me, if you give me a willing spirit, then I will teach Transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. David is saying on the one hand, God, you can use my life and my experience and my failure and and how you've dealt with me, I will use that to help other people, to help other people who are sinners, to have a relationship with you. This is not unlike the Great Commission, is it? For the church. If God forgives us, we have a role, and it's to help make disciples and to teach them to obey everything that Jesus commanded. So now the return to worship, verses 14 through 17. Verse 14, uh, David says, and this is about enablement, divine enablement. He says, deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. He's talking about his sin against Uriah the Hittite. Deliver me from that you our God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing righteousness. My tongue will sing of righteousness. David is saying, God, if you remove this guilt, then I'm going to be free to worship. I want to do that. Um, but I can't do it unless you deliver me. Verse 15 Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. Um, he hasn't had much to praise about. But when he, gets, when he senses this forgiveness, he knows he's going to be able to praise God. He's going to declare God's praise and declare God's character and declare God's mighty works. But he knows he can't do this without God's strength. We come to verses um, 16 uh, and 17, which are sacrifices. Verse 16, David says, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. Verse 17, my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. Now, this is going to be crucial to understand here. David recognizes that God doesn't want people just going through the motions in worship. God wants a humble heart, a broken spirit, broken and contrite heart. He wants a humble heart, an honest heart. At heart that wants to obey and please God. This is the most important. This is way more important than going through the motions. Now, this does not in any way discredit the commands in Scripture in the Old Testament to worship God with sacrifices. David is not throwing the sacrifices out. He's going to come back to that, so... Watch for that. But he is saying, empty worship is worthless. You know, we can have empty worship where we're just going through the motions. You know, that's the problem in the Old Testament. They went through all of this. They did their sacrifices. And it was about appearance a lot. It wasn't about their heart. Their heart wasn't right. God knew that. Nobody else knew it. Couldn't tell. God was looking for truth. He was looking for humility. He was looking for people who were humble before him, people who got it. Not just people who are going through the motions. It's easy to go through the motions, isn't it? It's easy to come to church and go through the motions. Nobody knows what's going on on the inside. It's easy to stand up and sing a worship song and not care. It's easy to sit and take communion where we honor God to remember what he's done for us, which is an act of worship. And it's easy to just go through it and be empty and have your thoughts on something else. And God cares about your heart first. He didn't say stop having communion. He says, I want you to have a a broken and a contrite heart. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 idea. This idea comes out in the New Testament. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. What's God's mercy? It's the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. It's all about the death of Christ and the impact of the death of Christ on um, Gentiles on the church on non-Christians on Israel and he just goes through it systematically and explains the death of Christ and what it means now in view of all that there's only two commands in the first 11 chapters and the rest of the book is loaded with commands I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice offer your body your body parts because your body parts get you into trouble your mind, your heart, everything that you are offer it to God as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Next slide. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. This is how you experience renewal. That's what David was after. Renewal. Offering his, and Paul tells us to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. It's like being all in for God. Being totally open and honest and authentic. Verses 18 and 19, kingdom advancement. Look at Psalm 51, verses 18 through 19. So our last part of the psalm. This is David. He's coming to the end. He said, "May it please you to prosper Zion." What is Zion? It's Jerusalem. It's the hill where Jerusalem is. He's saying, "God, may it please you to prosper your city, your city where the temple is. May it please you to build the walls of Jerusalem." Put a build the walls so that the, there will be a hedge of protection around this city. Then you will delight in the sacrifices. coming back to the sacrifices. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous. In burnt offerings offered whole. And then bulls will be offered on your altar. Aren't you glad you don't have to do that? But David is praying for God's kingdom to prosper in the future. Because that's what it would look like in Israel. That God would be honored here, God would be worshiped here, and by the way, it's gonna one day be the center of the entire universe. Revelation 21, Revelation 22. So David is just asking for prosperity in the kingdom, not financial prosperity, spiritual prosperity, spiritual advancement of the kingdom of God. Not unlike what Jesus prayed for in Matthew 6, verses 9 through 10. You know, this part, we call it the Lord's Prayer. Jesus said, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what Jesus, that's what David was praying for about Jerusalem. This is what Jesus is praying for, for us. That we do things just like things are done in heaven. When God speaks, people obey. Um, so let's go back to where we started, First 1 John 1, nine. If we confess our sins, if we agree with God, what he says about our sin, he is faithful and just. We can count on him. He will forgive us. We can count on that because he's faithful, he's just, he's faithful to his word. He will forgive us our sins, all of our sins. He will purify us of all unrighteousness. So, um, what does God want from you? Is there something in your life that you need to take the time and talk to him? And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Go home. I want you to read Psalm 51. Read it down through. As God brings things to your mind that you need to confess to Him, would you do that? Just you and Him. Open, honest relationship with Him. Let's stand and pray. Father, I pray um, that you would use Psalm 51 in our lives to humble us, to speak truth in our lives, to show us what you want. And just as we stand here today, is there anything God wants you to change? Maybe it's the way you treat your spouse. Maybe it's your attitude at work. Maybe it's your speech. How about gossip at school? home? What about dishonesty with your finances? Are you still stuck in pornography? Talk to God about it. Bring Psalm 51 before God. Ask for His help. Ask Him to enable you, for Jesus' sake. Amen.